Hello everyone and welcome to Unorthodoxy. My name is Duncan Rayburn and I thought I'd do something a little different. I'm going to step away from my usual blend of philosophical theology for a bit to explore something else I find interesting. I hope you will tolerate this detour and maybe even see the good that I see in it. The topic for this short four-part series is the Jungian psychology of personality type, or more simply, Jungian typology. I've been thinking about doing something like this for a while, and then my sister-in-law Arlene suggested that I should hurry up and make it happen already, uh, which is why this is now blaring in your eardrums. My aim is very simple. I just want to distill, as much as I am able to, the essence of Jungian typology. And then in the process, I hope I can give you some practical insights into what this may actually be good for. As many of you already know, the more common way that Jung's typology is known to us is through something infamous called the Myers-Briggs Type Indicator, also known by the acronym MBTI. Some of you, maybe against your will, have filled out MBTI tests for work or college, or maybe on a job application, or maybe you happen to have done it for fun, maybe as a distraction from work or studying or something like that. After completing the test, you will have then received one of 16 possible four-letter codes, like INTJ or ENFP or ISTP or something like that. And then you may have taken a moment to read a general description of what that four-letter code says about your personality. And this may or may not have been helpful to you, because sometimes the insights from the general description of each type are, well, not that insightful. Mostly, the MBTI functions as a bit of an ego boost. In fact, this is how the Myers-Briggs team began to formulate this, this system of thinking. They wanted people to recognize that they had unique gifts. But I think focusing only on the strengths of each type uh, is quite limited, especially when it comes to personal growth. Really growing means knowing not just what we're good at, but also knowing what we need to compensate for given the various compensations that personality itself is made up of. Yes, I'm saying I think our personalities can be thought of as compensations or even maybe as coping mechanisms. And like all coping mechanisms, they have benefits as well as drawbacks. Some of you already know that the MBTI has gotten a bad rap, especially in recent years. And just for the record, I don't think that this bad rap is entirely undeserved. A lot of the criticism is for its abuse in recruitment tests as part of job applications. And as much as the MBTI does allow for insights regarding what kinds of jobs you'll be good at, or maybe even what you'll find fulfilling, the only one who can tell accurately whether you want to do the job is you. The MBTI is not supposed to replace your subjective experience, but is supposed to help you to articulate your subjective experience. And to this, I'd also add that it's an abuse of the MBTI to use it as a way to prejudge people in any form, way or fashion. It's important to, to um, let people speak for themselves. Most of the criticism of the MBTI has been for a lack of scientific evidence with regard to its validity. The reliability of MBTI tests is also extremely poor, which may be because people don't understand themselves, but it could also be that um, the tests need to be refined in some way. In any case, with regard to its scientific validity, there are people 
like Dave's superpowers at Objective Personality and Juan Sandoval's Cognitive Type Team, that are working on making Jung's typology more objective. And the results of this are looking pretty good, at least on the side of being more consistent than the usual yields of the typology test. Still, on the so-called scientific issue, it's important to realize that typology, personality typology, deals by definition with subjective experience. And there will always be limits to how well we can understand subjectivity objectively, just as well as we will have limits when it comes to understanding our own subjectivity subjectively. So as I said, people are notoriously awful at scoring themselves accurately on various MBTI tests. But as I see it, one of the best ways, although not the only way to get beyond all of this inaccuracy and also beyond the deluge of misunderstandings that arise because of all this mistyping is to get beyond the Myers-Briggs type indicator. And that means looking at the Jungian thinking that the MBTI is based on. Carl Jung is famous for all sorts of things, of course, including his ideas around archetypes, the collective unconscious, dreams, mythology, and various other aspects of analytic psychology. I've referred to some of his thinking quite a bit in my own podcast, as many of you know, but as he was starting to develop his ideas beyond those of his contemporaries, people like Sigmund Freud and Alfred Adler, he was confronted with the question of how different turns of mind affect the way that people approach their concerns and deal with being in the world. Jung spent an inordinately long time trying to figure this out and then he started to identify specific categories of people on the basis of different processes of learning and deciding. But even before getting to the details of these different processes, Jung, at least to begin with, suggested two broad categories of people, namely introverts and extroverts. Now, of course, the terms introvert and extrovert are so much a part of our everyday usage that we may easily overlook what Jung meant by them, and why that should even matter. So, for example, people may think automatically of introversion as shyness or extroversion as being more outgoing, but even there we're starting to make some mistakes around what Jung actually meant. In Jung's 1921 book Psychological Types, which is my main textbook for what I'm sharing with you here, Jung suggests that everyone will have a more fundamental attitude towards the world, either introverted or extroverted. And this, broadly speaking, refers to the direction of a person's mental energy. Think of the word version, that's part of both words, introversion and extroversion. It's a question of the version, the story that people tell. Is the story mainly internal to them or mainly external to them? Is it more subjective, that is self-orientated, or objective, that is, other-orientated. Of course, technically for all of us, the story is always both, but our primary attention or focus will always be geared towards one or the other. What people emphasize on the whole should actually be pretty obvious. Do they lean more heavily on what's going on in their heads or what's going on outside of them in the world? Keep in mind that the relationship between the subject and the world is always one of adaptation. There is, in other words, a relationship of mutual influence. 
the world influences the subject and the subject influences the world. The question then, and this is the central question in all of Jungian typology, is what is preferred or prioritized? More technically, the introvert's attitude towards the world is always about abstracting. In other words, the introvert is trying to take energy from the world because the world is always perceived by the introvert, usually unconsciously, but often also consciously, as trying to overwhelm him or her. In more ordinary language, the introvert will tend to retreat from the world because the inner world of the introvert is always, in a sense, more real. In Jung's terms, the introvert is concerned with equipping himself or herself with ways to preserve self, often against the onslaught of the world. Introversion, for this reason, tends to be less fertile in terms of wanting to affect the world. The extrovert's attitude, then, is, is obviously the opposite of this. The extrovert doesn't tend to regard the world as being nearly as imposing as the introvert would. For the extrovert, the external world is more real. The extrovert's relationship with the world is therefore generally more positive. He or she trusts objects more and will adjust his or her own thinking as much as possible to conform with the information that objects and the world are giving. For the extrovert, the value of any object in the world can't be overemphasized or depleted. The object is always paramount. As Jung says, and I'm quoting him, the object can never have enough value for the extrovert and its importance must always be increased. So, for example, when it comes to something like extroverted feeling, which we'll get to in the third episode of this series, the object in question is the value system or ethics of the collective. Extroverted feeling, then, as either a dominant or auxiliary cognitive function, will value and even overvalue what others regard as important, often even at the expense of the self. Blake offers that there are two attitudes in people, one that is prolific and one that is devouring. And Jung thinks this is an excellent way to think of the difference between extroverts and introverts. Extroverts are prolific, meaning that they want to affect and change the world through expanding and propagating the self. In general, the extrovert therefore wants a multiplicity of relationships, either with others or with objects. The introvert, by contrast, will tend to want a monopoly on relationships and will resist the world's control over the self. Again, though, the issue here is one of emphasis and habits. It's about preference. I'm not saying, and no Jungian would say, I think, that only introversion or extroversion are present in each individual. What determines whether someone is an introvert or an extrovert is which attitude is more predominant. There is certainly an interplay between the world and the inner lives of people, but each of us has an attitude that stresses one over and against the other. So we can see that the actions of the extrovert are recognizably related to external conditions. Even the ethical considerations are those of the society or of society's needs. The extrovert will adjust himself or herself according to perceived external needs. I think that's really important to notice here that introversion and extroversion are hermeneutical in a, in a way. They are ways of interpreting and reading what's going on. 
By contrast, the actions of the introvert are recognizably related to internal conditions. What's most important is what's going on inside the introvert and inside the people that the introvert cares about. The introvert doesn't want to adjust herself or himself to the world as much as he or she wants to understand and relate to the world on the basis of subjective criteria. Of course, though, the adjusting of both types involves the influence of external and internal factors. The line between subjectivity and objectivity remains unstable at best. But whereas the introvert will be more aware of internal considerations, sometimes overlooking the external, the extrovert will be more aware of external conditions and will then often overlook the internal. So if you happen to have filled out the MBTI test accurately on the basis of really carefully asking questions about your preferences and your most natural habits, the first letter in that four-letter code that you get will be an I or an E, indicating either introvert or extrovert. If you get an I, and if that's the category that best applies to your preferences and habits, you'll be of the type that tries to mainly assimilate the world into your subjective frame. If you get an E, and if that's the category that best applies to your preferences and habits, you'll be of the type that tries to mainly assimilate yourself into the objective frame of the world. Now, when we get to the different cognitive functions in the next two episodes, these two letters, I for introversion and E for extroversion, become important for designating the orientation or attitude of each of the eight cognitive functions. I'm going to recap this as we go along, but I'll mention them here just so that you get a preliminary feel for the categories. So when it comes to the learning functions or perceiving functions, S for sensation and N for intuition, you can have introverted sensing or SI for short or extroverted sensing, that's SE for short. The I and the E next to that S for sensing indicates the attitude of the sensing function. And you can have introverted intuition, or NI for short, or extroverted intuition. That will be NE for short. SI and SE function very differently from each other, and NI and NE function quite differently from each other too, but we're going to get to more on that in the next episode. In the same way, the two deciding functions, thinking and feeling, can also have different orientations. Thinking is shortened to T and can be introverted, that will be TI, or extroverted, TE. And feeling, that's shortened to F, can be introverted, that will be FI, or extroverted, FE. And don't worry if this code doesn't sink in just yet. I'm going to take these beat by beat in the next two episodes. But for now, just notice that whenever you have an I or an E in the MBTI or Jungian system, we're always dealing with introversion orientated towards the inner world or extroversion, and that would be orientated towards the outer world. Very importantly, Jung's ideas around introversion and extroversion are not about social ability, although, yes, sometimes there is a correlation. Introversion does not equal social anxiety or neuroticism, for instance, although some of my introverted friends do happen to have social anxiety and struggle with negative emotion. 
As an introvert, I don't get social anxiety, and for the most part, I'm very low on neuroticism, but often the very thought of going out and seeing a whole bunch of people is so draining that I will do almost anything to step away from that kind of social setting. Introversion says nothing about security or insecurity either. You might be a very insecure extrovert, and I might be a rather secure introvert. You might be an extrovert who struggles with public speaking, while I happen to be an introvert who has no real issue with public speaking. This is not often realized because many people misunderstand Jung's usage of the two terms. But now, what happens if you are an introvert and you want to be more outgoing than you currently are? Can you learn how to do this? The answer is yes. Unfortunately, this isn't a matter of merely making a decision to be more extroverted, but is going to be a process of acting towards learning to be more extroverted. Slow incremental adjustments will lead to an improvement of the introvert's extroverted side. And the same applies to the adjusting of the extrovert towards being more aware and attuned to their inner lives. In this regard, it's good to know that while we have a primary orientation, i.e. I or E, we also have a secondary or auxiliary orientation, which is the opposite of our primary orientation, i.e. E or I. <laughs> E-I-E-I-O, I guess. And on that farm, the outward lookers, the extroverts, can look inward, although this is harder for them than it is for the introverts. The inward lookers, the introverts, can look outward, but this is more difficult for them than it is for the extroverts. This means that we are all, in a sense, ambiverts, and that we should work towards developing a kind of lopsided ambiversion for the sake of being balanced people. I say lopsided because we will nevertheless always favor one aspect of ourselves, the introverted or extroverted aspect, that is our primary and most natural attitude. The idea that we can live by the bread of introversion or extroversion alone is clearly nonsense. But the precise description of the primary and auxiliary attitudes of each of us will only really make sense when we get to the cognitive functions. The general principle can be mentioned here, though. Introverts need to grow their extroverted auxiliary function, and extroverts need to grow their introverted auxiliary function. It's going to be about acting out the function rather than just thinking about it, as, as introverts are, are prone to doing. And if that makes no sense to you, I think it's a good idea to keep the principle in mind. If you want to grow in something, the best way to grow is to actually do the thing you want to grow at. It's, it's like practicing a musical instrument. It's not going to help you to just look at it or think about it. You actually have to live into the thing that you want to get better at. But as we move towards a conclusion uh, for this episode, what does all of this mean for life? Well, obviously many things. But for one thing, it's clearly important to consider what this means for how you handle yourself in the world and how you relate to the world and other people. Some of you, thinking types, you'll get a little T in your MBTI code, will relate to the world in a more impersonal way. Others, feeling types, you'll have a little F in your MBTI, you'll relate to the world in a more personal way. And just knowing this and working with this can save you and others a lot of pain and misunderstanding. The ideal is obviously that whatever your style is, 
you work with others in a way that finds the best compromise between how you work and how they work. Relationships, as you all know, involve give and take, and the give and take between you and others should always allow space for both you and for them. Sometimes you'll be pushed beyond what you're usually comfortable with, and sometimes they will be, but the best form of accommodating everyone will involve taking everyone into account. A useful principle to apply to the question of the interaction of introversion and extroversion is this. There is no competition, and there is no need for competition between introversion and extroversion. Both have strengths, both have weaknesses. But what is definitely a weakness is when one of the two gets to have the biggest say. And this is where the tension can easily arise in our relationships. Tension often arises when people expect others to operate against type, when those others don't want to, and or when there is no room for others to be who they actually are. In other words, when people are not given the space to be who they most naturally are, unhappiness is bound to arise. Introverts tend to need to acknowledge the various good points to the extrovert's approximate one-to-one -one relationship with the world, and their need to process their inner lives outside of them as well. And extroverts need to be patient with the introverts need to have space and time to themselves to process that very complex world inside of them. I don't think it's necessary to provide too many examples of how this works because you'll be able to look at your life and the worlds of others and simply pay attention to how they prioritize the self-world relation. Self first or world first. I found that in the to and fro between introversion and extroversion, extroversion does tend to get the upper hand. It just happens to be louder. <laughs> to, and I'm using that word metaphorically though. This is something that's explored really well by Susan Cain in her book, Quiet. It's not that there are no advantages to being an introvert. Cain also points out many of those. It's just that the advantages for extroverts tend to be more obvious because in a way, they're announcing those benefits to the world. Anyway, in all of this, I have three suggestions to make regarding personal growth. Two for you specifically, and one you can think about with regard to your relationships. The suggestion is this. Make sure you have time to develop the attitude that is opposite to your natural attitude. So if you are an extrovert, you are going to need to make sure that there is space and time in your day to get really quiet and contemplate your life inside you, to figure out what you're actually thinking and maybe even what you're feeling. Often extroverts live so much in the world that their inner lives escape them, and this is really detrimental for the soul. It really doesn't matter what mode of cognition is more natural to you. You need time to think about what's going on inside you. Otherwise, you will end up basically sleepwalking through life. So do you give yourself space and time to do this? There are various ways to do this, and there are even very extroverted ways to do this, but the gist is that the extrovert needs to give herself or himself a chance to turn away from the world, whether in talking in therapy or to a friend or in writing or just maybe meditating. I think reflection is essential. And introverts, well, the opposite will be true for you. You need to learn to step B 
beyond your inner life. There are, of course, healthy and unhealthy ways to do this, just as there are healthy and unhealthy ways of engaging your inner life for both introverts and extroverts. But the principle is this. The real world is not nearly as hostile to you as you think it is. In fact, it can be and often is very good for you. Sometimes the form this will take can look very similar to the form that it takes for the extrovert, but the principle here is not just what you do, but how you allow yourself to be directed differently towards the world. Instead of self-orientation, you will allow yourself to be directed away from yourself towards what is outside of you. That said, though, here is my second suggestion. Make use of the time you have to explore and work in your natural attitude effectively. So introverts, you need to make sure that you use your introvert time effectively. It's not merely about downtime or time away from the bustle of things, but is about using that time and space in a way that is actually constructive. Some introverts I know, especially the one that I know best, namely me, are not always nearly as in touch with what they need and feel as you would expect. But it is up to them to figure out how to grow into knowing what they are and what they need as they walk through the world. And extroverts? Well, you need to use your extrovert time well too. Then lastly, more general relationship advice. I think it's a great idea to pay attention to the people around you and to really try to pay attention to what they need. And sometimes this doesn't mean presuming you know what they need before asking them, but actually requires you to ask them what they need. As we'll get to when we get to the deciding or judging functions in part three, sometimes judges, people who um, lead with a decision-making process, tend to presume a little bit too quickly. Uh, there needs to be an, uh, a participatory act going on some way that that they can get involved in the world and to really listen to what other people need. And even then, when the person in question tells you what they need, you may need to try and look behind the words they say. Maybe they feel weird telling you that, for example, they would actually really like to spend time alone rather than with you. So maybe, especially in the case of introverts, give them time to think and process what they need to. Maybe you ask them a question and say, let me know in five minutes. That may help. Remember that introverts do generally take a lot longer to process information than extroverts do. And then it's also very helpful to learn not to take offense when someone does tell you what they need when that need contradicts your own preferences and expectations. Of course, as I said, relationships are about give and take. There's an immense need for us to converse with each other openly and patiently until we find what makes sense in terms of who we are and obviously what makes sense in terms of the people that we are with. And so that's what I have for you in this episode. There's no doubt a lot in what I've said that is familiar to you. Maybe some of it is not so familiar. As we go deeper in the next few episodes, chances are pretty good that the ratio between the familiar and the unfamiliar will start to lean disproportionately in favor of the unfamiliar unless you happen to be a typology nerd. But the total aim remains to help you to gain some insights into how you work, how others work, and how we all work together. In the next episode, then, I will look at the first four of Jung's so-called cognitive functions. Those will be the learning functions pertaining to sensation 
and intuition. So if you're interested, you are very welcome to join me for that. Until next time, take care everyone.